Okay, we're recording now. Hi everyone, this is Hadley Thorne and I would like to welcome you to Weird Realities Inc. where we talk with some of the world's most interesting authors, podcasters, and filmmakers about their research into paranormal phenomena, ancient civilization, myth, folklore, and their own weird experiences. I'm delighted today to speak with horror, true crime, and paranormal writer and podcaster Jenny Ashford. Her most recent books are a three-volume true crime contemplation collectively known as The Faceless Villain, a collection of the eeriest unsolved murders of the 20th century. I have to tell you, I agree. I've, they are very eerie, and it's, it was disturbing to read some of it. <laughs> um, also, she has four paranormal nonfiction books, The Unseen Hand, The Mammoth Mountain Poltergeist, with Tom Ross, um, House of Fire and Whispers, The Rochdale Poltergeist, and she also writes horror novels, and those are The Red Menace, Bellwether, and The Five Poisons. Anything else? Oh, the graphic novel, The Tenbrist, and yeah. she also co-hosts a podcast with Tom Ross called 13 O'Clock, which I have friends who are huge fans, Jenny. So. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Welcome, and I'm dying to know what led you down the path from horror writer to marry true crime with the paranormal. Oh my gosh, it was such a long, strange uh, journey. I guess what initially, I mean, I still write horror. I don't have as much time to do it uh, as before. I would like to get back to doing more horror fiction in the future. But what ended up happening was that I had written some horror fiction, and then I ended up meeting uh tom ross who is now my you know my boyfriend and we've also been uh, business partners for probably about 10 years at this point and uh, he's also the co-host of our podcast and he uh initially ended up telling me about his mammoth mountain poltergeist case an experience that had happened to him when he was uh you know 12 or 13 years old and he kept telling me about it. I got to admit, I didn't really believe it at first because I'm kind of a skeptical, skeptical of paranormal things. But after a while, like he kept telling me and uh, finally I got some corroboration from some other family members that had also seen it. And so I told him, I said, you know, I'm, I'm really into creepy stuff. And when I was a teenager, I was really into poltergeist uh, stuff, particularly like the scientific kind of stuff behind poltergeist, uh, you know, phenomena. So I was like, would you mind collaborating uh, on a book about it? So he, so we did that. We wrote a book about that together. So that was like my first paranormal book. And from that, uh, we ended up meeting Steve Mara, who's a British parapsychologist and uh, be kind of befriending him. And uh, he, wa- he had a couple of cases that he wanted written up his book. So we co-wrote a couple of things there. And then I kind of did a poltergeist thing. But then later as it went on, I was kind of like, well, we've kind of covered a lot of the poltergeist stuff that I wanted to cover. I've always really, really been into true crime. And I really kind of wanted to go more in that direction. So I had the idea of doing the Faceless Villain series, which initially it was supposed to be one book. Um, I was going to cover... The whole, I wasn't going to cover like every unsolved crime in the 20th century because that would just be ridiculous. But I did want to do ones that were, that were really creepy, you know, that kind of stood out to me. And uh, so it was going to be one book, but then the more I researched it, the more I look into it, I'm kind of like, yeah, this is going to have to be several books because this is just way too much stuff. And there was just, there was way too much that I wanted to include. And I wanted to kind of delve deep and get into some cases, you know, obviously you have to cover kind of the ones everybody knows about, like, you know, the Black Dahlia and things like that. But 
I kind of want, I was kind of more interested in ones that were less well-known and, um, you know, so I guess there was a few uh, cases in there, uh, you know, that, that sort of had a little bit of an occult tinge to them, possibly, um, or that was kind of one of the, uh, you know, the theories about what had happened to the people. So, you know, so, so that's kind of how that happened. Like I said, it's, it's kind of, as I said, I'm kind of skeptical generally of paranormal stuff. So, um, but I do enjoy that kind of thing. And I do, I just come at it from like a scientific standpoint, but I do understand particularly in the true crime, uh, you know, in some of these true crime cases that they actually, that there might be an occult, uh, you know, thing to it. Like the people that killed them might have occult beliefs, particularly right. that are right. coming and, out it, in that way. Exactly. Sure. Yeah. And I think that um, most of the people that I come across in the paranormal community, I would say that I talk with, they tend to be, you know, we're, we want to believe, but we don't. So you had to prove it to us. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And in coming across um, the the four cases that we we talked about beforehand, um, the Charles Walton witchcraft murder, Bella in the Witch Elm, the St. Albans Street Massacre, and the murder of Jeanette De Palma, yeah. those floored me. You know, coming from my my personal belief system, it was just incredible to to read this and some of the things that you brought up and discovered and I can't wait to hear about each one of them. <laughs> I just have so many things. <laughs> yeah, these were four cases that I found that I found particularly interesting too. Whether or not, because as I said, all of these cases are unsolved. Uh, so whether or not that was exactly what happened or not, if there was an occult uh, you know, kind of aspect to the murders, no one knows because they haven't been solved. But some of them, uh, it sounds pretty plausible, gotta say. Well, the Charles Walton, um, the black dogs, that was something that just gave me the shivers. Um, I've heard about the black dogs in Britain for, you know, a number of years. And, you know, just in the history of, you know, folklore and mythology of that area, but never have I heard of a case with this popping up in it. Yeah, this is, there's not really a lot of cases like this. I mean, I kind of feel like, it happened a few, um, you know, not too long after the Bella and the Witch Elm murder, which may or may not have, you know, had occult overtones. I kind of feel like maybe that was more espionage based. But this one, um, I, out of all the cases, I think this is the most likely one to have had, uh, you know, some kind of occult, uh, you know, motive to it. it. It just seems too specific, you know, the way that he was killed. And there really didn't seem to be any other motive, uh, you know, other than that, you know. Well, can you give us the background of the case and kind of explain what happened? Because um, I, I had never heard of it. So I'm sure that um, a number, like a, your stuff, man, you had, you dug up some really good stuff. Because I live in Mississippi and I never heard of the redhead murders or the Texas um, killing fields. Yeah. And that's pretty close. And actually, when I, I was posted on my Facebook about how excited I was to talk with you, and I mentioned that I'd never heard of the Redhead Murders, one of my um, people I graduated from high school with told me, I said, well, yeah, there was a girl in the town over from us that she was murdered. You know, it was assumed to be the Redheaded Murder. And I'd never even heard of it. So, yeah. so it kind of hit close to home, but oh, wow. Yeah, it's crazy how, I mean, even I live in Central Florida and it's kind of like, I'm amazed at how many crimes happened around here that I didn't 
know about. It's just, it's really frightening because when you do, I mean, I know that being murdered, I mean, it's a terrible fate and everything like that, but it is still relatively thankfully rare for that to happen. But when you go back through, you know, the, the 20th century, and when you're trying to compile all of these cases from not only the United States, but I did the UK, I did Australia, I did some cases in Europe and Asia as well, if I could get my hands on the research materials, but there are just, it's almost kind of like bottomless. Like it never ends. I, I just kind of, I had written outlines and then I would write about one crime. And then while I was researching that crime, they're like, oh, and maybe it was related to this other one. So it sends you down this whole other rabbit hole. And um, it's just, there came a point where, you know, I just had to stop. I was just kind of like, I can't, you know, this book is going to be like 4,000 pages long if I don't trim some of this stuff out because it's just, you just keep finding more and keep finding more. And it's almost like there's no bottom to them and which is a really kind of horrifying and also how many serial killers there are you know running around or were running around back then uh you know that that people didn't even know who they were and they you know they've killed dozens of people and they're still unidentified you know and that's been going on for forever and it's just really really scary to me to think that you know oh definitely definitely yeah (laughs) okay well charles walton's witchcraft murder let's talk about poor mr walton yeah this is this is a very sad case this happened in 1945 in england now this guy he was an older guy he was 74 and uh he worked on a farm he lived in this little town called lower quinton i think he'd lived there pretty much his entire life uh he lived there by himself with his niece his niece was in her 30s Um, I think that she, I don't know if her parents had died or whatever, but um, he had adopted her uh, when she was three and she had lived there kind of taking care of him since then. So it's Valentine's Day, February 14th, 1945. And uh, Charles goes out about eight in the morning and he goes to work. Now he worked on this farm and it was called the Furs and uh, you know, like the tree. And the dude that owned it was named Alfred Potter. Now, Charles had been working for this guy for about nine months, uh, mostly just kind of just doing regular stuff or just, you know, trimming hedges, that kind of stuff. And that's what he was doing on this particular day. So he has with him, he sets out to work in the field and he has his walking stick because he had rheumatism. So he needed his cane. Uh, He had a pitchfork and he had a bill hook, which I guess is kind of like a curved knife, you know, for scything away, you know, brush or whatever. So he always took that out with him uh, as well. So at this point, uh, he's out there working. And then uh, around four o'clock in the afternoon, Charles's niece, whose name was Edith, she gets home and she sees that her uncle isn't home yet. And she gets kind of freaked out about it because he's always home from work by now. So uh, a couple other hours, a couple more hours pass by. She gets like even more upset about it. So she gets this other neighbor, uh, Harry Beasley, and uh, also the guy that owned the farm, Alfred Potter, and they all go out to look for him. Now, sadly, I mean, it doesn't take that long to find him because they knew where he was, you know, the area where he was going to be working that day. So they go out there to see if they can find him. And they uh, do indeed find him, but he has been murdered. Now he's, so his body was found under an oak tree. 
The cause of death seemed to be that he was bashed in the skull with his own walking stick uh, that still had, you know, bits of skin and hair on it when they oh. found it. Um, they, someone had also almost beheaded him with the bill hook. Some reports, and I'm not sure, because as I said, this is 1945, um, so it's kind of hard to determine which reports are completely accurate and which ones are later, you know, extrapolations or whatever. But some of the reports said, too, that someone had used the bill hook to carve a uh, cross into his chest. Um, so at this point, like I said, the bill hook had actually severed the trachea and it was still there, like it was sticking out of the wound in his neck. And also, this is one of the grimmest details, but somebody had used the pitchfork that he had taken to work and they pushed the pitchfork all the way through his throat so that his body was pinned to the ground. Oh my um, God. And it was so deep into the ground that it took two guys to pull it out. So obviously a very strong person or people uh, had done this. So another neighbor comes by uh, and they sent him to go get the police. And so basically one of the first guys that they are asking questions to, obviously, is Alfred Potter, the guy that owns the farm. Now his story was that he had been at a pub with his friend uh, at that morning and had left the pub about noon. He said as he was crossing the field, he saw Charles Walton still alive. Uh, he was only about 600 yards away. And uh, he said that he had known he, I mean, he had been managing, he didn't own this farm, but he managed it like for the, for the person that did own it. He'd been managing it for about five years. He said, I've known Charles Walton, you know, at least that long, uh, you know, he called him, I believe the quote was a relatively inoffensive type of man. Um, there, it's weird because it really doesn't seem like he was a loner, you know, he was an older guy, but nobody in the town, it was a very small town, everyone kind of knew each other. Nobody seemed to have any particular, you know, grudge against him or anything of that nature. Um, why someone would murder him in this particularly horrible way, you know, no one could really figure out. So they did an autopsy. They determined that uh, he had died sometime between one and two in the afternoon. So it's, you know, pretty much broad daylight. Uh, you know, they, they were like, well, it possibly could be robbery because maybe his, you know, his pocket watch was missing, but that it really didn't seem like, I, you know, I don't know why anyone would go to all that trouble just to steal a pocket watch. Um, but pretty early on, investigators were kind of like, well, okay, the person that did this has to be a lunatic. Um, or one of the other possibilities that they were looking into was that they had a, a POW camp. There were some, uh, an Italian POW camp, not too far away from where this farm was. And, um, the guys were, it was minimum security. So the guys were kind of allowed to, you know, go out on day trips and things. And they were like, maybe somebody from there was wandering around or whatever, because they did find one guy that had been kind of walking around in the area earlier and he had blood on his clothes. So uh, two days after Charles Walton was murdered, um, Chief Inspector Robert Fabian of Scotland Yard, who was actually kind of famous in uh, crime circles, at least in the UK, uh, he shows up and they start investigating this POW angle, but it doesn't really come to anything. Um, they're like, yeah, a lot of the POWs, they kind of went to a play that day in the area, but they did find out that the one guy that they saw that was wandering around with blood on his clothes, he had just been poaching. Uh, he'd actually killed a rabbit and ate it. 
So it wasn't human blood that they saw on him. So that angle was uh, pretty much eliminated uh, right away. They also looked into Charles Walton's best friend, who was an, uh, an older gentleman named George Higgins. And he had actually been working in a field pretty close to where Charles, Charles Walton had been murdered, but um, they couldn't find anything on him either. He didn't have any particular reason uh, to want his friend dead. And they thought, well, he's basically too frail to have one push the pitchfork that far into the ground and you know done the types of things that are that they saw on the body now they were pretty sure like right from the outset though the main suspect they were looking at was alfred potter the guy that was managing the farm even though it didn't seem like he had much of a motive to kill the guy uh he did like give a lot of weird sort of inconsistent statements he said at first, like three days, they interviewed him three days after the murder. And he said, yeah, I was at the pub until about noon. Uh, and then when I left the pub, I went right home because one of my heifers, you know, one of the little cows had fallen into a ditch and I had to like help the cow out. And I got to the farm about 1240. But then like a few days after that, he said, no, I actually went to the house first and then read the paper and hung out in my kitchen for a little while. And then I went next door to help my neighbor with something. They also found out that the cow he'd been talking about had actually died like a day before the murder. So he was seen as a little bit sketchy because his stories weren't really uh, adding up. He also said something like um, that he had seen Charles Walton working in the field and he's like, well, he had his shirt sleeves, he had short sleeves on, uh, and he's explicitly mentioned that in his first interview. However, when the body was found, um, Charles Walton had a jacket on because, you know, it was February, so it wasn't really all that warm. And another thing that uh, kind of pinged the authorities' radar was that one of the cops mentioned to him, uh, you know, oh, hopefully we can get some fingerprints off the murder weapons because they had all been left there. And Alfred Potter kind of went out of his way to say, oh, well, when I discovered the body or when I walked up to the body, I touched everything. So my fingerprints are going to be on there. So that seemed a little fishy. Um, so like I said, he didn't really seem to have any motive for killing the guy, though, even though he couldn't really. And there wasn't really any evidence tying him to it. It's like some people were like, well, maybe, you know, they had a dispute over wages or something, but it actually seemed like the opposite because Alfred Potter, he was having Charles Walton, you know, this older man, like work for him. And what he was doing was that he was um, essentially paying, uh, he was telling the guy that owned the farm that the, that the guy was, that Charles Walton was working more hours than he actually worked. So then he was like paying Charles Walton his wages, but then he was pocketing the difference. So it was actually kind of a good arrangement for him. So it seemed kind of dumb for him to want to kill the guy yeah. because he was getting some extra money out of it. So at this point, they're kind of like, okay, well, you know, he seems like the most likely suspect, but he didn't really have a motive. So then they start looking into the way that he was killed and maybe that it had something to do with the occult because as I said, it seemed almost ritualistic, like the way he was. And it, it, it was strange that it was like the middle of the day and it was, you know, he was hit with the thing and then the throat and then possibly the cross and then the pitchfork. And it just seemed very specific. So at this point, uh, you know, some of the things that are pointing to it being kind of an occult murder. So the place that he was killed 
is a place called Mion Hill. Now, apparently this used to be the site of an Iron Age hill fort. And back in the day, supposedly, um, that it was kind of like a place where druids met or you know, there, there were witchcraft rituals or whatever. Um, so around town, people started thinking maybe uh, Charles Walton was sacrificed um, wicker man style to ensure a better harvest because you know that was something that they would have done back in the old days and maybe somebody got that idea in their head to do it nowadays because indeed in the town uh, the harvest from the year before had been quite poor so maybe somebody got that idea. Now uh, so some of the other things that are pointing to that so they're like, okay, well, one, it took place on Valentine's Day, uh, which on the old Julian calendar was uh, Candlemas, uh, or the, the uh, there also there's a Celt Celtic festival, I think it's pronounced Imbolc, and uh, that's kind of like a sacrifice day or whatever. Uh, February 14th of that year was also happened to be Ash Wednesday, which might have given it greater significance. So they find uh, one of the detectives on the case he showed the Scotland Yard, they had this book called Folklore, Old Customs and Superstitions in Shakespeare Land, which is uh, the county of Warwickshire, if you know, you're not from England. Um, and he highlighted a couple of things in there. Now, one of the things that he highlighted, there had been a murder back in 1875, and it was this woman named Anne Tennant. Now she had been killed with a pitchfork by a dude named James Haywood, who thought she was a witch. Now, in real life, if you go back and look at the actual report of the murder, she was just stabbed with a pitchfork, like in the town center. He came, he ran at her and stabbed her with a pitchfork, and then she later on died from the injuries. However, in the ensuing years between 1875 and 1945, folklore had grown up around this particular murder. And the folklore was that everyone knew that she had been pinned to the ground with a pitchfork and that someone had used a knife or a bill hook to slash her throat and carve a cross in her chest. So it was very significant that somebody who, even that wasn't, even though that wasn't what actually happened to her, the folklore surrounding it and everyone in this town would have known the, the legend of how she was killed. And it involved the same kind of thing that happened to Charles Walton. There was also another passage in there and this other passage was about a little boy whose name was also Charles Walton, although they don't think it was the same guy, um, but it was just a weird, maybe a weird coincidence. But there was a little boy in this story named Charles Walton. In 1885, he had kept seeing this apparition of a black dog and a headless woman that portended the death of his sister. So yeah. I guess in this, yeah, so in this part of England, I guess the phantom black dog thing, that's a very common uh, portent of death. You know, it's like a bad omen. And even the guy from Scotland Yard, Robert Fabian, um, it's, I, I don't know if he was making this up or not, but he did say that while he was working on the case that he thought he saw a black dog lurking around Meon Hill, whether it was a real one or whatever, no one really knows. Um, yeah, so as I said, Lower Quinton, the little town, their, um, you know, their uh, crops had been very poor the prior, the previous year. So they're speculating maybe somebody got it in their head. Hey, you know, they knew this story about the witch and everything. And they're like, maybe we need to do a ritual sacrifice, you know, put some blood into the ground and maybe next year the crop will be better. 
Um, there was also an interesting thing that kind of came out later that Charles Walton, even though, as I said, he seemed like a pretty well-liked member of the community or no one had any particular grudges against him or anything like that. But when they started asking around the other townsfolk, they said, well, there were some kind of stories about him that he knew, you know, a lot about plants and about healing type of stuff. Um, you know, he had a reputation that he could get birds to eat out of his hands, that he could tame wild dogs just by talking to them. Um, some uh, townsfolk even thought that maybe he was into black magic a little bit, that he had cursed people's cattle at some point or that he could uh, blight fields like he had an army of toads that he would send out and they would, you know, mess up the fields and everything. <laughs> so, yeah, so so there were some rumors swirling about him. So, like I said, that kind of made it more likely that maybe somebody in the town was kind of like, well, you know, he's maybe he's powerful in black magic and maybe if we sacrifice him, you know, that, that'll be even more powerful and that'll make the crops grow better. So basically they, they interviewed every single person in this town, which was less than 500 people at the time. Um, there were actually, I think later reports said that a lot of the people in the town didn't want to talk to the police. So there was kind of like a, I don't know, kind of like a layer of, oh, a conspiracy theory about it. But that's not entirely true. Um, they said most of the residents were perfectly happy to talk to them and it wasn't as bad as it kind of, you know, as people perceived it to be later. Uh, but they really never could find anyone in particular that, as I said, had motive or they never found any physical evidence of any kind um, who would have killed this poor man. And as I said, it's this case, it's over the years, I think the occult thing has, has come way more to the fore. So even at, to this day, as far as I am aware, uh, in England, the murder is still known as the witchcraft murder. Um, and it's also actually the oldest unsolved murder in uh, the Warwickshire Constabulary records. So there's that as well. I don't, that's the thing, 1945, I'm really not sure if this will ever be solved, sadly, because it really does seem like just someone, I, I don't think there was any particular motivation other than maybe that. I don't think anyone hated the guy. I don't think there was, you know, I, I don't think there was any kind of like normal motive. There just didn't seem to be. And it just seemed to me very strange that someone would go through all of that to kill him in the middle of the day when someone easily could have walked by and seen it. I mean, no one did, but, you well, know. Just listening to your account, it makes me think that it was someone lost their mind beat him to death with a stick and then tried to cover it up and make it look like a ritualistic killing with the other stuff. It could have been that as well. And in that case, I do think, I mean, the, the Scotland Yard guy, uh, Robert Fabian, he was pretty much convinced. He thought that Alfred Potter was the killer and he didn't know exactly why the guy would have killed him. Um, you know, he didn't really seem to have a motive, but he was just saying, you know, he was in the area uh, he gave some strange, inconsistent statements, you know, so it, so it is very possible that he, they just had an argument and he killed him. And then he just thought of that story and was like, oh, well, maybe I'll just make it look like this so they won't know it's me, yeah. which if he did do that, then I guess it worked because he never yeah. got convicted well, of it. <laughs> red herrings everywhere. 
It, it is. It is. It's really, yeah. This is one of the creepiest cases that I, uh, that I discovered, you know, well, just from what I read, he seemed like such a peaceful little man and he minded his own business and, you know, and then that happened the to him. And then it's, it's, it's sad because that's probably like, that's now that's the only thing that people remember about him is this, the way that he died, which is really awful. Yes. So Bella in the witch elm, you said that came yeah. before, um, the Charles Walton? Yeah, this was a little bit before. Um, and as I said, this one seems more like, I mean, this is a much better known case um, because it just has all these really weird details. This one, it did have a little bit of an occult, like there was um, maybe some occult kind of stuff going on, but I think I suspect that this one maybe had more of an espionage uh, type of uh, type of thing to it. But no one is uh, entirely sure, obviously. But yeah, this happened in uh, the, also in the 40s, this was 1941. Now, what happened with this, or actually this was 1943, you know, it, so it was 1943. So uh, again, this is another part of England. It's uh, Birmingham this time. And there are four little boys and they're uh, in the woods and they're looking for bird's nests. And they're on this uh, kind of acreage known as Hagley Wood. And this is an estate, uh, this guy named Lord Cobham, it's his estate. And so they're kind of sort of poaching a little bit, but you know, looking for uh, bird's nests. So they see this tree, it's a witch hazel tree. And one of the kids, Bob, uh, he climbs up to see, to get the nest down. Now, when he looks down into the tree, which was, I guess it was a dead tree and it was hollow in the middle, so he glances down and he sees something down there that he thought was uh, an animal skull at first. So being a little boy, he's kind of like, oh, neat. So he goes in there and gets it. Um, but then he looks at it and obviously it's a human skull. It still has hair on it. Um, you know, so at this point they're like, okay, well, this is a human, this is human remains and we're not supposed to be on this property because we're poaching. So let's just put it back where we found it and we'll forget <laughs> this ever happened. So that's what they did for a few hours. Uh, later on that night, one of the boys, uh, the youngest one, whose name was Thomas, he uh, basically broke down and told his dad what they had found. So they call the police and they all go there the next morning to check it out. So inside the tree, they found obviously the skull, which had been found earlier, but they also found most of the rest of the skeleton, except for one of the hands, for, whichever, for whatever reason, which like I said, this is one of the things that makes people think that maybe there was an occult uh, thing with it, was that one of the hands was actually buried near the base of the tree rather than inside the tree with the rest of the body. Well, that's crazy. That, yeah, that is pretty weird. I'm not really sure how that happened. I mean, it's possible that an animal could have done it, I guess, like when, when the body was still... Uh, you know, still had flesh on it. It's possible that an animal just could have said, Hey, I'm taking the hand and then buried it um, to come back later. I'm not really sure, but it was very strange that the hand was found separate from the rest of the body. So they found a bunch of other stuff in the tree as well. They found one crepe soled shoe, uh, some fragments of clothing, a bottle, uh, a wedding ring, like a gold wedding ring. And they also found a scrap of fabric. It was taffeta and that had been uh, crammed into the mouth. So from that, they determined that she had probably been suffocated. 
So they determined that this is a woman that she was probably between 35 and 40 years old, uh, was quite small, probably only about five feet. Uh, they think that she had at least one child, possibly two. She had uh, dark brown hair. Some of the hair was still attached to the skull. She had a very strange teeth, like very, uh, you know, the teeth were real crooked and kind of messed up. Uh, they determined they're like, well, she must have been stuffed into the hollow of the tree when she was still, I mean, obviously before rigor mortis had set in because it wasn't a lot of room in there. So whoever did this stuffed the fabric into her mouth and then stuffed her into the tree, like pretty much almost immediately. Now, so the investigators were like, okay, well, she has these crazy teeth, so that's good. Um, maybe we can identify her, you know, from dental records. But uh, they did a search of dental records and got nothing. So they thought perhaps this woman was not a local. She wasn't from there. Uh, there had been no missing persons reported that looked that, you know, that matched her description uh, from that area. And some of the objects that they found, like the bottle and things like that, they thought that maybe they had come uh, the, from Germany. You know, so they figured she was maybe German or maybe Dutch. Now, because this was 1943, and uh, you know, it's World War II was going on in Europe. Uh, you know, and there was a lot of missing persons. There's a lot of deaths. So there's a kind of a lot of chaos going on at the time. So it was kind of difficult to determine who this woman was, where she had come from. Now, in, uh, there was a lead that kind of came from, uh, you know, a guy that sort of lived in the area a couple years before, because they determined that this woman had probably been in this tree for a while, um, that it had been probably a year and a half or more, because as I said, she was completely skeletonized, meaning that she had been murdered probably sometime in 1941 and had been in there uh, all that time. Wow. So this guy comes forward. He had lived in this area in uh, July of 1941. And he said, I was out with a friend one night and we heard a woman screaming uh, while we were walking near Hagley Wood. We did report it at the time and they did find the police report. Uh, but the police came and I guess they didn't find anything uh, going on. So nothing ever came of that. Um, July of 1941 would have been around the time that she was murdered. I think the pathologist said it might have been October of 1941, but you know, close enough. So yeah, so that turned up pretty much nothing. And then for a couple of years, it seemed like, you know, they got some more leads, but they didn't really go anywhere. However, right before Christmas, 1944, something started really creepy started happening. Um, in Birmingham, uh, on a wall along Upper Dean Street, somebody, they don't know who, had written a message in big white letters. I don't remember if it was paint or chalk or something like that. The message on the wall said, who put Bella down the witch elm, Hagley Wood. And over the next few weeks, more of this graffiti started turning up uh, around the West Midlands, around this Birmingham area. They don't know if they were all written by the same person, but some of them said like it was variations of the same thing. Like some said, one said Hagleywood Bella, one said who put Lua Bella, Lua Bella down the witch elm, um, you know, just things like that. So they don't know. They didn't know if the person writing this stuff like actually knew something about the crime or if it was a prank or if one person had written something just to be funny and then everyone else was just like picking up on it, you know, sort of like a Kilroy was here type of thing, like, like they had back in the world war two. Um, 
So at this point, be because all of this graffiti started appearing, uh, kind of interest in the case got renewed because, it, you know, it, it had been a couple years at this point and, you know, they, the leads had kind of been going nowhere. So, you know, the media starts talking about it again. So after this, uh, this prostitute from Birmingham, she came forward and she said, well, there was a prostitute named Bella who worked along this stretch of road near Hagleywood. And, you know, I think she kind of disappeared right around 1941. Um, so maybe you should check that out, which they did. Uh, they didn't find anything, uh, you know, having to do with that either. Um, again, as I mentioned before, the fact that the, the hand of the body was found separate, was found buried like next to the tree rather than in the tree. So a few people, particularly Margaret Murray, who's an uh, anthropologist, she came forward and she said, well, it's possible that, um, that Bella, whoever she was, was the victim of an occult ritual and that they were trying to create a hand of glory uh, you know, which is a magical thing you make out of a dead person's hand. And it's supposed to make you invisible when you go into other people's houses. They, uh, they actually had a reference to it in the original Wicker Man movie. And I've seen other uh, references to it as well. But yeah, it's supposed to make you invisible when you break into houses. So uh, she thought maybe that that had something to do with that. Um, and as I said, it seemed like that didn't gain much traction at the time. But after Charles Walton was killed in 1945, then I think people went back and revisited that theory a little bit. But as far as I know, that might be the only thing that's kind of leaning toward that, you know, but as I said, it's still unsolved. So they don't really know. Now, as I mentioned, I think there is more evidence to suggest that maybe this had something to do with espionage because they think this is one of the theories that the woman that was found in the tree is maybe a Dutch woman whose name was Clarabella Dronkers. And she was supposedly involved in a Nazi spy ring. Now oh. the story was that maybe she had been strangled by this other Dutch spy who was named Van Ralt. And this story was coming from the wife of another dude that was supposedly there. There was a guy who supposedly saw the strangling and his name was Jack Mossop. And he had supposedly helped Van Ralt cover up the murder by stuffing her into this tree in the middle of the woods. So they thought no one would find her, which they didn't for like a year and a half. Um, so his wife, Una, later told police that he had told her that story. Now, there's another version of the story, too, that they actually um, that they actually didn't kill her, but that she got really drunk one night when they were all hanging out together and for whatever reason, she passed out and they thought it would be funny to stuff her in the tree so that she would wake up and be like, oh, maybe I should stop drinking because some because I got drunk and somebody stuffed me into a tree. So so like I said, so there's two versions of that story, and I'm not sure which one of those is true, if either of them are. Now, uh, some of the stuff about this or about her maybe being a Nazi spy um, there actually was a Nazi operative uh, that they know of who was codenamed Clarabella, and she was known to have parachuted into the Midlands, uh, that area in 1941. And there was also another Nazi spy that was executed in England in 1942 that had the same last name as her. So they're thinking maybe, you know, husband, brother, whoever. Okay. So, so that kind of uh, jibed as well. Now, there was also another kind of 
similar sort of theory where there was this guy, he was a Gestapo agent and his name was Joseph Jacobs. Uh, fun fact, he was the last guy that was ever executed at the Tower of London. So, you know, uh, when he died or when he was executed, they found in his stuff, they found a picture of his girlfriend who was a German actress and a cabaret singer. Her name was Clara Bowerly. And she had actually lived in Birmingham uh, for, uh, for quite a long time. She was also thought to maybe be a Nazi agent. Um, and in this case, they probably think, yes, there, there was some kind of mission that went wrong. So another agent killed her or whatever. Now, interestingly though, so for a long time, the Clara Bowerly thing was one of the main theories because they're like, after 1941, she was supposedly never seen or heard from again. However, Clara Bowerly was actually quite tall. Uh, the woman in the tree was actually, they think was only five feet tall. And when I was researching this, cause this actually came out like after the book came out, but in 2016, they actually found that Clara Bowerly had died in December of 1942. Uh, and they knew where she died. She died in Germany, in Berlin. So they determined that that was not her. So basically, even up to now, I think the most recent, the, the graffiti still turns up. Um, you know, people at this point, like I said, in Unsolved Mysteries circles, it's a fairly well-known case. So I think maybe at this point, it's probably just people uh, that are fascinated by true crime that are putting the graffiti up. I don't think it's anybody that has any knowledge about the case because they are probably all dead at this point. But the graffiti, you know, who put Bella in the witch elm does still turn up uh, from time to time. There was one in 1999 that somebody wrote on uh, Witchberry Obelisk. And also uh, 2016, I think somebody wrote it on a wall uh, on a fence, like near where her body was found. So it is still a pretty fascinating case. As I said, I, I feel like the occult thing came more to the fore after the Charles Walton murder, uh, you know, late after she was mm -hmm. murdered. But I think this one may be more espionage. But honestly, it seems weird to me that the people, if, if it was a spy ring, say, uh, I, I kind of feel like unless these were people that had lived in this area for a long time, because it was kind of a remote area of woods. It's like, why would you go to all the trouble to take this woman out into the woods, you know, suffocate her and then stuff her in a tree? It seems very labor intensive. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like if it was, you know, just a spy thing, it's like, oh, hey, she messed up her mission or she's or she was identified or whatever. I feel like they would probably just shoot her and just throw her in the water somewhere. Um, it, it just seems like a very strange way to leave someone, uh, you know, I just feel like that it, it seems a little unprofessional. It almost seems kind of like more as I maybe maybe ritualistic more than espionage yeah. related, you know, so many things. I mean, yeah leave so many um different questions i like the espionage tie-in maybe it's all yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> a little bit of it all but... <laughs> yeah it's got something for everybody <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> so, so the say Auburn street massacre that's more and it happened in the u.s didn't it yeah that happened in uh, detroit uh one thing that fascinated me i don't know i might have mentioned this on one of our podcasts or something at one point but one thing that fascinated me researching a lot of these cases particularly from the early 20th century which for some reason 
I guess because we know that the ones from the earliest early 20th century will probably never be solved just because so many of the witnesses have died. You know, they didn't have the forensic evidence or anything. So, so maybe these are like a lot more fascinating to me because they'll always be mysterious. Mm-hmm. But one thing that I noticed, I, I mean, there were so many axe murders in the early part of the 20th century that I was just kind of floored. And I really don't know. I thought maybe it was because um, maybe an ax was a more common like weapon of opportunity back then, because I seem like everybody knows about the Velisca ax murders, right? That happened in 1912. Um, you know, and there was also, uh, you know, not, it uh, wasn't the Atlanta river, but the, uh, the ax man of new Orleans, which mm-hmm. is also a very famous case. That was early, also early 1900s. Well, those Lizzie were, <laughs> yeah, those were also ax murders, but it's like, there were so many. And honestly, when I was, uh, writing about Velisca, there were a whole bunch of other ax murders that happened right around that time that, Maybe, I don't know if they were all the same person, but it did seem like someone was kind of going around on the trains, like around the Midwest, um, axing people, like breaking into people's houses and axing entire families. Um, So, you know, when this one, the the St. Aubin Street Massacre was kind of like that. It it was a a family annihilation and it was also uh, a really gruesome ax murder that this one also seemed like it probably had some kind of occult tie-in as well. But yeah, this, uh, this happened in 1929. And so this guy, Benny Evangelist, he was actually born Benjamin Evangelista. He was from Sicily. And uh, he had uh, immigrated here in the early 20th century with his family. So he had a wife, um, Santina, and they had four kids. Uh, they had one that was eight, one that was six, one that was four, and one that was 18 months old. So they had a house on St. Aubin Street in Detroit, Michigan. Now, in 1906, Benny said that he had a vision from God. And he started billing himself as like a mystic and a healer. And he started essentially like a little religious cult or a little sect Uh, that was called the Union Federation of America. And he also wrote sort of the Bible of the sect, which was called The Oldest History of the World Discovered by Occult Science. This was kind of like strange because it was a Christian offshoot, but it also had kind of some pagan uh, stuff mixed in, a little bit some voodoo, uh, that kind of stuff. So it, it... I don't know. It, it just had this just very strange kind of uh, amalgamation of beliefs. That was the thing that kind of fascinated me about it was him being Italian and the voodoo tie-in. Yeah. I was like, how did that even happen? <laughs> yeah. It's just, it, and particularly back then it wasn't, I mean, like nowadays it's very easy to yeah. come by information yeah. about that, but like ni- 1929, that seems like something that you would really have to seek out on purpose, unless it was a case of maybe him just like some of the, uh, you know, some of the rituals that he used maybe just reminded people of voodoo and maybe it just kind of, it was just like coincidental. It might've been that as well, but I don't know. Yeah. It just seemed like a strange, like he had an altar in the basement that had like a big light up eyeball and all these kind of wax effigies that are, that were supposed to be different stars and planets and things like that. So, yeah. So he had this sect going, 
he was also a carpenter. That was like his day job. Uh, but he made mo more of his money actually uh, with the with the church with the sect because he would um, he had like healing services that he would give to the followers and back then he was charging like ten bucks per session which is in today's money about one hundred and fifty dollars so you know not bad yeah um, and he was making quite a bit of money uh, doing that and he you know he he would do he would do just kind of mystical intervention type stuff you know. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't think he did curses or anything, but he was just kind of like, oh, you want happiness with your family and this and that. So he's giving blessings or whatever. So, uh, so one evening, this is Tuesday, July 2nd, 1929. Benny stops by this house in his neighborhood and this house was going to get torn down the following day. So there's a guy there watching the property. So anybody steals stuff. And he goes and talks to the watchman. He says, Hey, um, I already arranged with whoever owns this house that I'm going to buy all the lumber from when you guys tear it down. So he's like, I'm going to come with a crew in the morning and I'm going to pick all the wood up. So he's like, and I'm going to bring the money with me to, you know, when I, to buy the wood. So then he goes back to his house on St. Aubin street. And as far as anyone knows, that was the last time that he was seen alive. Now, next morning, weirdly, uh, Benny doesn't show up at the demolition site and the crew that he had hired to pick up the wood didn't show up either, which seemed a little strange. So this one guy who was a real estate agent, his name was Vincent Elias, and he had an appointment with Benny that Wednesday morning um, because Benny was uh, going to buy some property. So they were supposed to have a meeting at the, his house. So Vincent comes to the house and um, goes in there and finds that the entire family has been murdered. Now, Benny was found sitting at his desk with his hands folded in his lap and his head was in, like sitting in a chair, like next to him. Somebody had crept up behind him, presumably while he was sitting at his desk, cut off his head with an ax and very neatly put the head on a chair in the room. Now in this same room, uh, there were also the bodies of his wife and children. Santina, his wife, um, had also been almost decapitated. And uh, all the other children had also been killed in their beds uh, by an axe. And uh, the baby had also been killed. That uh, The killer had bashed the baby's skull in with the axe as well. Now, they did find, the cops came and they found um, some bloody fingerprints on the front door latch of the house uh, but they couldn't find a match and they kind of canvassed the neighborhood but you know there weren't really any witnesses no one had really seen anything it seemed like it happened kind of in the middle of the night like it seemed like uh, Benny had been awake still obviously because he was sitting at his desk but the rest of the family were in their bed so presumably they'd been asleep um, you know so basically the first thing they were looking at was they found it very weird that the lumber crew that was supposed to turn up with Benny on the morning that they found him murdered, that they didn't show up. It's like, how did they know not to show up? How did they know that Benny wasn't going to be there? So then they kind of formulated a theory. Well, maybe because um, they never did find the money that he was going to pay the crew either. They're like, maybe, um, you know, one or more of the people on the crew were like, oh, well, we're just going to rob him and then we're just going to kill his whole family and then just skip town or whatever. So the investigators look into that angle, but sadly, 
whoever this crew was, whatever this company was that he had hired to pick up the wood, they could never figure out what company it was or who was on the crew or anything like that. So that kind of went uh, nowhere. Now, there's a lot of speculation too that maybe um, somebody that was one of his followers or maybe a rival uh, cult leader could have been responsible for the murder as well because in Detroit, right around this time period, right between 1929 and 1931, matter of fact, um, there were a bunch of murders that were seemingly related to occult activity or you know other cults operating in the area. Um, about two months after the Evangelista family was murdered, there was a woman named Rose Vares who was known as the Witch of Delray. And she got arrested because they thought that she was a serial killer. They thought that she murdered 10 men who boarded in her house because what she would do, she would have men board in the house. She would take out a life insurance policy on them against their, you know, without them knowing. And then they would uh, turn up dead or missing. Now she did get arrested and put on trial, but the police found that it was really, really hard to convict her because all of her neighbors thought that she knew black magic and they were terrified of her. So they would not, uh, they, they wouldn't give any statement against her. They'd just be like, we know nothing. We saw nothing. Uh, she did get convicted, however, but uh, she got exonerated only a couple years later. So basically, and as I said, there was another murder too, and I can't remember what the victim's name was offhand, but there was another murder that was, that was kind of like cult related too, because there were, it's weird because in the area, there seemed like there was a lot of rival cults you know what I mean? And so it's kind of speculated too, if robbery wasn't the motive, then the most likely motive would be that another cult leader thought that Benny was encroaching on his turf or what have you, and decided that he was going to take the entire family out in pretty much the most disgusting, gruesome way possible, and uh, did that. And as I said, this happened in 1929. So, and I feel like this is, even though, you know, Axe made of New Orleans and Velisca and stuff, I feel like that's those are really well-known axe murders. This one, I'm just amazed that I had not heard of it before I started, you know, researching the book. Cause I'm like, that's pretty, that's pretty messed up. Like cutting off a dude's head while he's sitting at a desk and then leaving the head there in a chair, like oh. next to him. That's kind of messed up. <laughs> I don't understand how no one made a noise to wake anybody up. That's another thing too. It's like, that was another thing that bothered me. It's that it must've happened very, very quickly because as far as I could determine, um, Benny, his wife and the baby were all in the same room. Now they had three other daughters, but they were in a, um, in a bedroom, like across the hall. It just, I don't know. And, th and this was another thing that struck me when I was, you know, uh, about the Velisca ax murders too, is that how can somebody break into a house, um, and just ax people to death and not like, and nobody wakes up, you know uh, what I mean? I mean, it's, it's just that it, more than one person. I mean, I mean, you would think because it just seemed, and, and they know that, and in the Velisca case, I know that they know that none of the people woke up except for one girl um, because everybody was just in sleeping positions. You know what I mean? Nobody had moved. So yeah. whoever it was had just come in and, you know, just whacked everybody in the head. And I guess nobody, I don't know. It's just, 
that's really crazy to me. And I think the same thing happened in the Axman in New Orleans, uh, you know, cases too. And the interesting thing about that case too, is even though that's a lot more famous, a lot of the Axman's victims lived, which that blew my mind. I didn't realize that you could be <laughs> bashed in the head with an ax and survive, you know, and still be relatively okay. But a lot of his victims actually did. He did kill some of them, but a lot of them did live, which I don't know that that just for some reason that that detail just always fascinated me because I would have thought that it would have been immediately fatal, but I guess not. I guess it depends on where you hit, right? I suppose so. And I, and I think too, that uh, his thing was, I think he usually used the back of the ax, like rather what? than the business end, you know? So it was, all, so it was almost more like a bludgeoning than a, cause I think that was what happened in Velisca too, because I believe in the Velisca case, they even had, there were, there were marks from the ax blade in the ceiling where the killer had, you know, hit the victim with the back of the ax and then pulled his arm back and, you know, and then the blade went into the ceiling because there were like blade marks up there. So they're using the back of the ax rather than the front, which that's, it doesn't make it any less horrible. It's just kind no, of- it's, it's even more so weird that they're quiet. I mean- Yeah, it's just- I mean, I sleep hard, but <laughs> not that hard. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's just, my goodness, my, my cat jumps on my you know, jumps on the bed and I wake up and she only weighs, she only weighs nine pounds. (laughs) So I don't think anybody's coming in there with an ax and I'm just like, not gonna, I don't know. I I, I can't say, but I I don't know. Maybe some people are just really, really heavy sleepers, I suppose. (laughs) Well, we're getting close to an hour and I'm going to take the opportunity to ask you some personal questions if you don't mind. Oh, I don't mind at all. Like too personal, but so- I can tell you're very enthusiastic about the true crime stuff because it's, it's obvious that you love what you're doing. And I just want to take, and I, 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 I guess a question here would be, how do you use this to fuel your horror fiction writing? It's interesting because I don't know if I've ever, I'm trying to think back to all of the horror fiction that I've written it's strange because I feel like I don't use actual crimes to inspire anything uh, in my horror fiction, but I do use a lot of nonfiction, but it's not usually nonfiction about crime, if that makes any sense. It does. Like, so, like I'm trying to think of, like, I know a couple of stories I've written, um, you know, one I wrote after I had read this book about um, you know, like brainwashing techniques, you know, it was all that MK ultra kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, I read a book about that. And I thought that was really fascinating. And that would make a cool horror story. And so, so I kind of base a lot of it, a lot of horror fiction on nonfiction, but not necessarily crime. It's interesting, because I almost kind of feel like when I write horror fiction, I like um, supernatural stuff. I like not necessarily monsters, but I like ghost stories i like a lot of psychological horror and stuff and i don't because i'm a big horror fan as well i love horror movies i love horror novels and you know have ever since i can remember and i when i watch a horror movie or i want to write a horror story i almost always want to write like a haunt something about haunted houses or some or even witches or something like that i don't usually gravitate to um fiction that's based on true crime you know what i mean 
Like I like slasher movies and stuff, but it's not my favorite genre. It's not usually the, the first thing that I go to. So I don't, I don't, I don't want to say that I don't like horror fiction that's based on true crime. It's, it's almost kind of like, I like to keep the two things separate. Cause it's like, Oh, this is real shit. And this is, you know what I mean? But it's, I don't know. It's, it's kind of like a strange, cause I feel like if I'm writing horror fiction, it's like, there's so much terrible stuff that happens in true crime. It's almost kind of like, I want to go more supernatural with the horror fiction because it's like if you know if you want to read about something horrible that really happened it's just like go read about this case that really happened you know what I'm saying exactly. um, um, yeah for yeah me, for me I hear little bits of things and it will stick with me like when I was reading about um Mr. Walton's story yeah the thing that struck me was them saying that the sheer look of horror in that man's eyes and yeah, that's what I mean is you know oh my god what inspired the horror you know he saw the person was it a person what was it you know um I'll take something like that and marinate on it and I just wondered if you did something similar when you came across like something specifically creepy or crazy sometimes I mean uh, particularly because like I said I I feel like I'm fascinated by true crime in general but the the most fascinating cases to me are ones that have aspects like that where where it's just completely weird it's just like why was this person murdered why did the killer feel the need to do this particular weird thing Um, that kind of stuff will inspire fiction you know what i mean because i'm just because i'm trying to put myself in the mindset of why someone would do that why was the body left this way why you know what i mean so so i like one's I know that's a weird thing to say. I like crimes where they have like very, very strange, inexplicable details. You know what I mean? I'm like, I'm fascinated by like the Somerton man case and all that kind of stuff where there's just all these little weird details that seem like they don't make any sense. And you just can't figure out, you know, what was the process that led up to them being found this way? Exactly. Well, Jenny, I have totally enjoyed you being on the show today, and I hope that you'll come back when you have some time. So, and will you like to tell our listeners where they can connect with you online? Oh gosh, anywhere. Um, probably the best place to start is my website, which is just www.jennyashford.com. And that has links to pretty much everything, all my books, podcasts, everything. Also, if you go on YouTube and you search 13 o'clock podcast, uh, you'll find uh, the podcast that I do with Tom Ross. We do paranormal stuff. We do tri- true crime stuff. We do movie reviews. We do, we even started doing a uh, food like cooking show <laughs> because that's <laughs> another thing that we do. We just started that a couple weeks ago, but yeah. I, and I do book reviews like horror books and stuff. So we have pretty much like something for everybody. And we put a video up at least one video up pretty much every day. That's kind of our main thing at the moment. Uh, but yeah, just, and, and if you go on Amazon too and search Jenny Ashford, I have an author page on there uh, with all my books and, and all of that. And I will be posting links in the um, description of the show too, but I've totally enjoyed it. And I really do hope that you'll come back the next time you have a, a book or anything new coming out. We totally would love to have you back. James is going to be so upset. He actually grew up in Detroit. Oh man. <laughs> he's gonna hate that he missed that and i wish that we had longer um to talk but i don't want to keep you so. oh it's a, no problem and as you know really thank you so much for having me on this was like this was a really good time
Well, perfect. And like I said, anytime you want to come back, just let me know and we'll make it happen. All right. Okay. Awesome. All right. Well, that's going to do it for today, guys. I hope you enjoyed today's show. We have some great Weird Ink sessions scheduled for the following week. So be sure to like, subscribe, or follow so you can get a notification when we drop new content. And that's going to be me letting you know Weird Realities um, will be out again at the end of the month. And thank you very much. And we will talk to you then. Keep it weird. <laughs>